The rest of you can turn to Jonah chapter 4. Have a good time, children. <laughs> uh, let me just say, if, if you're visiting with us again, welcome. Uh, glad to have you guys here with us. Uh, we have been in the book of Jonah, and this is the last this is the last message in the book of Jonah, if you can believe it. Um, and I really, I've, I enjoy the book of Jonah. I love it. I hope, I hope you have too. Um, it is a, a challenging book for us in, in many ways. Um, and it ends, it ends rather abruptly. Uh, we'll talk about that in just a minute. But uh, we will be con- beginning a new series on God's eternal generosity, which will bring us up to the Thanksgiving holiday. After that, it will be Advent, and we will begin, it will be officially like legal Christmas time, so uh, it is, that is okay when, you, like, it's okay to sing Christmas songs now, I guess, but people, it's also okay for people to like give you dirty looks, uh, if you do, um, but then it'll be really okay, so I really love Christmas, I get excited about it, so here we go. Jonah chapter 4, uh, we'll read the whole chapter. Uh, The story so far, if you don't know, Jonah has finally made his way to Nineveh and done that which God has been calling him to do, which is to arise and go and preach the message to Nineveh. Uh, Yet 40 days and your city will be overturned. And there was a great repentance in the city of Nineveh and a great turning away from their idolatry and sin. And in chapter four, here is Jonah's response to this great work that God has done in the city of Nineveh through his preaching. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, somewhere in the, 
in the catalog of the Duesenberry photo archives. And I know this is true of you as well. It is true of almost all of us, although nowadays maybe the photo archives are more extensive uh, and less tangible than they, they were when I was a kid. But somewhere in the Duesenberry photo album, there is a picture of me, and I'm probably three, four. It is like an early school picture. And, you know, uh, and in this picture, I have got like, I'm making a face and it's like my bottom lip is sticking out and I'm just, I do not want to be in this chair in front of this photographer who's saying stupid things to try to get me to smile like say fuzzy pickles or I can't think of anything else. But that's, I remember that one specifically, a photographer saying like, instead of just saying cheese, say fuzzy pickles, like that's gross. No. Um, but we all have that picture. We have the pout picture. And like, like a few years ago, and I guess they still do, but a few years ago, people would like do the pout picture. I said it was called the duck face picture. And it was like an attempt to do something else, evoke something else entirely in your photograph. But we still have this pout picture. Because we, was we pout. We're a pouting people, right? That there are times in our lives, especially when we were kids, the pouting externalizes and we can't hold it in. But as adults, <laughs> you, you still pout. You are more sophisticated and refined and subtle in your pouting. You perhaps feel a little more justified and rationalized in your pouting, but you still do it. And I think the reason that we do this as human beings, why, why pouting is sort of a universal human reaction to things that's sort of been broken uh, by the fall, if you want to get really theological about it, I think the reason that we do this is because we forget. That we pout because we forget. That we forget the many, many, many times that we have gotten exactly what we want, right? The many times that we've gotten everything that we wanted, every dream, every desire just kind of come true naturally. Like we forget all of those times because now we're in the middle of this one crisis moment where we are not getting exactly what we want, right? And so that is why we pout. We forget the, the, the times we don't get our way. Why? Because the world according to me has just gone horribly, horribly wrong. Some idol in my heart has been threatened. And one of the first reactions that comes to mind or comes to the front is pouting. We forget the many blessings of God, the many times God has forgiven us. I wish I could say with Paul, Paul Tripp, uh, who, if you don't know, is one of my favorite preachers, I wish I could say that I was nothing like Jonah. (laughs) I wish I could say that. I wish that were true, that I was nothing like Jonah, that I didn't let my selfishness control so much of my attitude towards others, that I didn't get so angry with God so easily, that I wasn't so prone to pouting. But the fact of the matter is, not only am I just like Jonah in these ways, but I'm probably a lot worse than Jonah I mean, he had a relationship with God that, that was pretty profound and special. And I'm not sure I'm quite there on Jonah's level, if you know what I mean. But on the level of pouting and getting angry, absolutely. Several times through the story 
As you know, God has called Jonah to go to Nineveh, calls him to go preach, and Jonah runs. Several times, Jonah opts for death over obedience to God. When he gets tossed into the ocean, when, he's, when he is sitting here now, he's, he's crying out to God uh, for, for death over obedience, over contentment, over cooperation with God's plan. Here he cries out to God, or before he, he cries out to God from the belly of the fish, right? And what does God do? He graciously rescues Jonah from the belly of the fish. God's, God's mission and call to Jonah for Jonah was excruciatingly difficult. Uh, Nineveh were his and Israel's sworn enemies. Uh, their paganism, their wickedness was infam- infamous in, in their time. Uh, they seemed really like the, less, the least likely people that Jonah could imagine who would ever respond positively to God's offer for repentance. And their hearts seemed, from, from Jonah's perspective, really to kind of be harder than any he could possibly imagine. But throughout all of this, what have we been saying about Jonah? He is still God's man. And even in chapter four here, where he expresses some of the most childish things and like the ugliness of Jonah's heart just kind of comes out, bubbling out, and he just kind of can't contain it anymore. Even so, in chapter four, we're still going to see Jonah is still God's man. God has not given up on Jonah to the praise of his glorious grace. We, like Jonah, so quickly forget how much we need God's mercy and grace, and we start to believe that, that we, that I, that Ashley, is a better dispenser of God's grace than God is. Right? That's fundamentally one of the things that Jonah is believing here. So let's look at this in two ways. First, as God turns away from anger, Jonah turns towards anger. Secondly, as God's pity goes out to Nineveh, Jonah pouts. So let's look at God's turning away from anger and Jonah's turning towards anger. It's, it's just remarkable. This first verse in chapter 4, at, at the response of what has happened, this miraculous like, repentance on the part of Nineveh. And we've got to be careful here. Like, what has happened in Nineveh isn't some covenantal relationship, some covenantal turning towards God and permanent relationship to him, but it is a profound level of repentance and sorrow over their sin and wickedness. It is a turning away, at least, from those behaviors that are so repugnant to God. So even if it's not necessarily full-scale covenantal salvation of a people, but nevertheless, some great repentance, some great revival has happened that will have ramifications in Israel, as a matter of fact. And in response to this, Jonah, it says, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. So even as God turns away from his anger, Jonah is turning towards his anger. And the reason, I think one of the reasons that Jonah's anger is so deep and profound here is because Jonah's worldview is kind of collapsing on him. That, that evildoers and pagan idolaters, the enemies of God's people, all of which are represented in the Ninevites, should be punished according to Jonah's worldview, right? They should be destroyed. 
And, and maybe Jonah finally goes and preaches to the Ninevites this message that God has given him in hopes that they will be destroyed. And it kind of, as we read along in the chapter, you kind of get that sense that that's fully what Jonah kind of expects. But when Nineveh repented, Jonah's true feelings broke through. Why is his anger so extreme? Why, does it, why is he so displeased exceedingly, it says? From the depths of, of Sheol, a.k.a. the belly of this fish where Jonah was, the place of death, Jonah prays this prayer to God. He doesn't pray very often in, in the book of Jonah. But Jonah prays this prayer when he was in deep, deep trouble. The waters closed over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed over me forever. Get the sense of the soul despair that's going on in Jonah as he's in this predicament. Yet, you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. That's the prayer that Jonah prays when he's in trouble and in need of this radical rescuing mercy of God. And here from the depths of his anger, here's the prayer that Jonah prays. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Like what does he do? He is is naming off these wonderful, gracious, merciful characteristics of God. And he is sending them back up to God like arrows of accusation from his angry heart. Do you see how topsy-turvy that is? how messed up and broken that is. Therefore, he says, now, O Lord, please take my life from me for it is better to die than to live. (laughs) Here's the plot twist. The M. Night Shyamalan moment in this whole book. Jonah didn't run away from Nineveh because he was afraid he'd fail. He ran away because he was afraid he would succeed And what he saw happening in Nineveh proved him right. He saw repentance. He saw turning away from worshiping idols. This is what needed to happen in Israel at the time of Jonah's activity in the land and on planet earth. He saw in Nineveh what should have been happening in the nation of Israel, but wasn't. Jonah's sermons accomplished in Nineveh what they never accomplished in Israel. Israel had been a land of idolaters. And Jonah's despair, I think part of it is in frustration and in despair over over Israel's salvation. Jonah's fears over Israel's unrepentance are, are compounded in a way by Nineveh's repentance. The repentance of Nineveh was a shame to the unrepentant nation of Israel who existed with all of these benefits of the covenant life. The temple was there. The history was there. The the word of God was there. The sacrifices were there. These, these, These playing out dramas of atoning blood for the sins of the people were there. They, they had been a beneficiaries of this for a thousand years, and none of that was making a difference in the nation of Israel. And here in Nineveh, these pagan foreign 
people who had no history of any of that, no historical relational knowledge with the covenant God, responded like that to Jonah's call to repentance. This wouldn't be the last time Israel and Nineveh were compared side by side. Jesus does it in Matthew 12, verse 41. He says, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The repentance of Nineveh will shame those of Jesus' day who failed to repent upon hearing the preaching, not just about the Lord Jesus Christ, but from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nineveh's repentance is a demonstration, a profound, radical, shake-your-worldview demonstration of not, God's not just willingness to forgive and to be merciful, but his eagerness to. But Jonah's able to hold on to his anger because of self-righteousness. He pouts because he's forgotten. He's forgotten who he is, that he's a rebel, that he's prejudiced, that he's a nationalist, that he's a legalist, that he's disobedient, that he's running from God. But also, not just who he is, he's forgotten who God is. That Jonah himself has been saved time and time again by the very graciousness, mercy, patience, and steadfast love that he now resents in God's actions towards Nineveh. How is it then that he would argue for an economy of cold justice instead of an economy of grace? Here's what I mean. And in an economy of cold justice, that is justice just totally separated from, from the saving love of God. In an economy of cold justice, you get what you deserve. In an economy of grace, not only do you not get what you deserve, but you get what you don't deserve. You get what another has earned for you. And that other person, Christ Jesus, gets what you deserve. That's the economy of grace. That's the gospel. When you argue for an economy of justice, you are arguing for something that you cannot sustain. In an economy of cold justice, Jonah stays in the belly of the fish. So how then can he now be arguing for just this thing? Jonah is so far off on God's redemptive agenda that that all he can think of is dying. Take my life from me. It is better for me to die. Like, do you get a sense of the, like, just the brokenness of this episode in this man's life? And let's just be honest, this is probably the low point. I mean, probably being in the belly of the fish was the low point, but this whole thing is the low point in Jonah's life. But he's almost reacting worse to this than he did to the fish, right? How does God respond to this man, to his man? What does God do? What does God say? He doesn't say this. That's it. Forget it, Jonah. You're out of here. I'm done with you. I've done everything I can. I've pursued you literally to the ends of the earth. We are done. As you read Jonah's words, 
Uh, Paul's trip says you almost want to hold your Bible like way out here because you just know like a lightning bolt is going to come down and strike it just because of Jonah's impudence and, and just, just in your face spitting in the eye of God here, right? How does God respond? He responds with the most patient, loving, fatherly, gracious question to Jonah. Just a question. Do you do well to be angry? In this question, there's an invitation. An invitation for Jonah to think about his own heart, to examine his own heart, and to repent. He asks that question of us. We are called then to accept that invitation. We are called then, as Jonah is, to examine our own hearts. We're invited. This isn't a, okay, you better go to your room and look at, take a good look at your life, mister. This is a, this is a gracious invitation. Look what, at what is going on in your heart. Accept that invitation. Examine your heart for the same self-righteousness that Jonah is experiencing and, and displaying. Examine your heart for that same nationalism, that same prejudice, that same judging others by a standard that you yourself cannot sustain. Do you do well to think or speak ill of your neighbor who doesn't look like you or vote like you or believe like you? Do you do well? Do you do well to engage in sort of the, the outrage porn of social media and the news and watercolor, water cooler gossip? Do you do well? Do you do well to love materialism and comfort and security and power? Examine your heart and repent then to a God who is a judge, but who is also gracious and merciful and patient, and loving, and forgiving, and who also has made a way for you to find forgiveness for those things that he reveals to you in your heart. That through Christ Jesus, all of these things can be forgiven freely. That the gracious, merciful, patient, faithful, and forgiving God of Nineveh is the same God who was born in a manger and lived on planet earth and preached and died and was raised from the dead, that that is the same person who calls us and invites us to examine and to be honest. God will turn away from his anger for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. God's pity goes out to Nineveh and Jonah pouts. So Jonah then goes outside of the city to watch the show, right? The destruction of Nineveh. And I got to say, if that happened, like, okay, that would be quite the show, right? The actual wrath of God coming down from heaven to destroy a whole city. It would be terrible and horrible and awful, but also it would be something to witness. And so Jonah kind of sets up camp. And I may be taking too, of a, too much of a cynical view of what Jonah's doing here, but he sets up camp and he's, he's positioned to watch what is going to happen, what he has convinced himself. 
still is going to happen. And, and overnight, this great plant rises up out of the ground and covers Jonah's little tent or booth there. And this plant made Jonah not just happy, but exceedingly happy. Kind of in the same way as Nineveh's repentance made him exceedingly angry, this plant made Jonah exceedingly happy, exceedingly glad. And he wants to see if their repentance is real. He's still, he's still kind of holding out hope that God's going to destroy them. He positions himself with the best view. He becomes a spectator. What is he doing here? Jonah's setting up his own little kingdom, right? His own little kingdom on a hill as he passively waits and watches for God's wrath to come down. His own little kingdom of happiness. And all is kind of right in Jonah's world. What does God do? (laughs) He disrupts Jonah's kingdom. He messes up Jonah's kingdom. He messes with his stuff, right? God graciously does this. He graciously disrupts Jonah's kingdom of comfort. Verses 8 and 9, the sun rose and appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die. He said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry for the plant. Of course, I'm angry about the plant. It was my plant. It was a nice plant. It had nice leaves. God, again, harnesses nature to teach Jonah a lesson, a lesson by disrupting his kingdom of comfort. And again, this question, this question of grace is aimed straight at Jonah's heart. An invitation to examine that heart and repent. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? Now look, I have a plant. I have a plant that I've kept alive for several years. It's a very expensive plant in my estimation. It cost me like 50 bucks. It's like this little bonsai tree that I bought at Brussels Bonsai down in Olive Branch. And so it's a nice bonsai tree. I love this thing. But let me tell you, we have several animals in our house as well. Look, if the house is on fire and I get to rescue either the plant or the lizard, <laughs> like I'm going for the lizard, right? I don't necessarily know why, but I'm going for the lizard because there just seems to be something, and I'm sorry if you're a plant person, there seems to be something more intrinsically valuable about this lizard that has, maybe it has blood. I don't know if that's a thing, but, but like that's a weird benchmark for valuing life. Um, but it's a plant. And God asked this question, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah's response is incredible. Yes, angry enough to die. And what is the Lord's response to this, this object lesson of the plant? He said, you pity the plant. And it's almost like, okay, fair enough, pity the plant. But you didn't do anything to make the plant happen. You didn't plant the plant. You didn't water the plant. You didn't even know the plant was going to show up. It just kind of showed up because I made it show up. And then when I made it go away, why are you mad, right? It's a plant. And his response, his, his next question then to Jonah is this. You pity the plant, fair enough. You had no real reason or right to pity the plant. Should I not pity Nineveh? 
Should I not pity these 120,000 plus people in this, this wealthy place? That's the deal with the cattle, right? That's why it mentions and also much cattle. That this was a prosperous, wealthy city. This was a powerful city. It was a great city in worldly ways, right? But God is saying, should I not pity these people? And the implication there, who I gave life to, who are my creatures on my planet, in my universe, because I'm God, should I not pity those people? And I love how he describes the, the people of Nineveh. It's almost like he looks at them and he sees this with kind of fatherly affection, like, like little babies. These people, these 120,000 plus people, he says, they don't know their right hand from their left hand. Should I not pity them? This is not only an incredibly gracious response by God on behalf of the people of Nineveh, but it's a gracious response to God to Jonah. It's funny, the only declarative statement by God to Jonah is, you pity the plant. Everything else is imperative, arise, go, or interrogative. Like, do you do well to be angry? But this is the clincher to this object lesson of, of the plant. Shouldn't you have pity on the souls of the people of Nineveh. Again, God is shepherding Jonah. He is shepherding his man with this gentle but stinging object lesson. Jonah is still his man. Jonah, God is still pursuing Jonah. God is still teaching Jonah. God is still loving Jonah with his grace. So what do we do? I think one of the things we can do is, is pray that God will disrupt our kingdoms of comfort. That we tend to think in, in, in America in the 21st century that, that economics equal favor, right? That if we have comfortable homes or disposable income to buy pretty much anything we want, if we have a schedule full of activities and get-togethers and dinners and teams and all this kind of stuff, that that indicates that somehow we are, we are smiled upon by God. Like Even if we don't actively think that, there's sort of a subconscious way that we think about that, those things, right? But that's prosperity gospel heresy. That's what that is. What if economic abundance is a curse instead of a blessing? What if, what if having all of this stuff means that we think we need Jesus less because we have all this stuff? We have these kingdoms of comfort that are so easily set up. Pray that God will disrupt that. Not that having that stuff is in and of itself wrong, but when it becomes an idol, when it becomes something, when the things of this world become something that we make to sit in God's place, when we replace ultimate things with these temporal things, that's idolatry. Pray that God will disrupt your idols even idols of comfort. Don't set out to build a kingdom of comfort centered around career or salary or materialism. Don't set out to build a kingdom of comfort centered around friends or social ladder climbing or those sorts of things. Not that those things are bad in and of themselves, but pursue Jesus, and this is harder, pursue Jesus each day by praying that each day he would show you something new of which you need to repent.
that the gift of repentance and the gift of conviction of our sin is a mercy and a grace and a blessing. That he would grant you the grace of showing you your sin and breaking your heart over it. That you would so frequently run to the cross that that grace would be the air that you breathe. I see myself in Jonah. (laughs) I wish I didn't, but I do. Jonah is called to identify with the people of Nineveh and help them as best he could by the grace of God. But he loved his kingdom of comfort. He loved his self-righteousness. He loved his political and national idols over obedience to God. I see myself in Jonah. By God's grace, by his mercy, he is forgiving me. Not because of anything that I'm doing to earn that forgiveness. Not because I'm balancing the scales of my sin with good works, but rather because God is merciful. He forgives because it's in his nature and his character to do so. The gospel is free because God freely loves and freely gives to all who trust in him and who trust in Christ. So if you see yourself in Jonah, run to the cross. Run to the same mercy and grace that God showed Nineveh. And I think that God showed Jonah as well. We don't, we don't really know who wrote this book of the Bible. And a tradition says that Jonah did, right? But there's no like, evidence to one way or the other. I like to think that Jonah did. I like to think that Jonah wrote this book. That he's sitting there in his home after the fact. And I like to imagine him telling this story. Telling his story. Giving his testimony of this pursuing God who never gave up on him, who never stopped pursuing him, that he's not leaving out any ugly details about himself, that he's not hiding his sin, that he's free to put the brokenness of his own heart on display for all of history to remember and to record because he knows That to best tell the story of God's grace, he has to tell the story of desperate sinners and of his own deep need and sin. And then, and then you can tell the story of the depth of the love that not only matched that sin, but exceeded it and filled it up and wouldn't let him go, even when he wanted to die. That's the grace of of the book of Jonah. Let's praise God for that grace. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your mercy to us, just as we thank you for your mercy to Jonah, that we have this book now because because someone told the story of your love, because someone didn't hide the ugly truth of who they are because they knew that the ugly truth of who we are pointed to the beautiful truth of who you are and what you have done for us. That it's all about you. It's all about what you have accomplished. It's all about what you have done to bring about a redemption in our hearts, to bring about healing and wholeness and confidence and peace through Christ Jesus and what he has accomplished for us. Lord, thank you that, 
that his yoke is easy and his burden is light because he has carried it for us. He has accomplished it for us. Lord, may we now and then respond to to what Christ has done for us with lives that reflect your character and nature into the world. That as a result of hearing this, may our hearts be changed and transformed. May our identities be found not not in anything that I do, but may my heart and my identity be found in Christ Jesus and what he has done for me. Lord, even as we come to this table, we pray that, that you would meet us here, that we would see you in this bread and in this wine, that, that we would find at this table a visual reminder of the grace of the Lord Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.